May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. And I have two guests for the price of one this episode. I have the recently former president of the New York County Lawyers Association, Vince Chang. And because he's been replaced, I have the new incoming president of the New York County Lawyers Association, Adrian Koch. Good afternoon, Vince. Good afternoon, Adrian. Hi, Rich. Yeah, thanks. All right. That was incredibly enthusiastic. <laughs> they, they, they look enthusiastic, but you can't see them when you listen to this podcast. Vince and Adrian are great lawyers. They uh, are old friends of mine. I have been in cases with both of them. Adrian wiped the floor with me a few years ago in a case she probably remembers. We had happened. fun. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it was fun. I'm sure it was fun. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we're all a similar vintage and litigators in New York City. So let me start with you, Vince. Tell the audience a little bit about the New York County Lawyers Association, which goes by the acronym NYCLA. Well, Rich, first of all, thank you for all the work you've done for NYCLA over the years. Uh, We worked together for many years on the Federal Courts Committee when I was its chair a few years ago. And uh, we appreciate all that you do for NYCLA and appreciate the opportunity to talk about NYCLA on this podcast. As those of you who know anything about NYCLA know, we were founded in 1908 because women minorities and Jewish people were excluded from other bar associations in New York City and elsewhere. And NYCLA provided a bar association home for attorneys of all races, of all genders, all religions. We've remained true to that heritage today. We're still open and inclusive. At NYCLA, a young attorney can make a difference. Uh, at NYCLA, you don't have to apply to be on a committee. You don't have to be a partner in a major law firm to serve on our committees. You don't have to be uh, someone who's been out of law school many, many years in order to make a difference at NYCLA. We're also the uh, independent bar association that's willing to take stands on public policy issues, and we follow no established orthodoxy or political viewpoint. By way of example, we stood against the attacks on Justice LaSalle, who was the uh, governor's nominee for chief judge when he was nominated, even though other bar associations did not take up the call and did not defend Justice LaSalle against what we thought were highly unfair attacks on him. Well, hold on, Vince, because we're going to get into a few of those. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) And, And I appreciate that. And I think all of that is true about NYCLA. There are different bar associations, especially in the New York area. And this one is very inclusive and does get involved in policy discussions, which I think are good features. So let me turn to Adrian for a second. Congratulations on your ascendancy to the throne. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well-deserved. You will be terrific, as Vince was. So what do you have, what are your sort of overarching goals for NYCLA as you move into the presidency? Sure. So I guess I would begin by saying that uh, NYCLA is much, much larger than any one person's agenda, right? And so I am, in a very real sense, just carrying the baton forward that was so ably carried by Vince. He hands it to me. My job is to keep us moving forward because we're moving in the right direction, guided by our core values. And one thing that you can always count on when you're thinking about the future is unpredictability. And one of the great things about NYCLA in that regard, as Vince 
alluded to a moment ago is that we are nimble and we have the ability to react to circumstances as they arise. And our core values will always animate everything we do. But the next big challenge that we may be called upon to address may be something that we don't even know about yet. But with that sort of caveat in mind, I do have a number of things that are particularly near and dear to my heart. The first is diversity and inclusion, which is a a big watchword at NYCLA. It animates everything we do, and it will always be that way. Among the things we've been doing lately in that regard, because it seems to be the hot point issue in that space, is uh, responding to the barrage of recent and ongoing attacks on the dignity of transgender people. So that's one thing that's uh, that's been going on, and I think, unfortunately, will continue, and we will continue to respond. Another uh, of the core issues that has been especially in the forefront lately, as Vince also alluded to, is judicial independence. Judicial independence has been under attack not only here in our own backyard, as Nyla has been very vocal about, but also nationwide and even worldwide. And on the occasion of my installation as president, I announced that I am forming a task force on judicial independence to do uh, not only a broader and deeper dive in a scholarly way, but also to try to engage in some civic education to help educate the public on why an independent judiciary is something that they should care about. And so a third thing that has really, really been in the forefront lately is assaults on reproductive rights. And I I feel like I almost can't turn on the television without seeing some news of some latest assault on reproductive rights. And NYCLA already had in place a reproductive rights task force that Vince convened actually just shortly before the Dobbs decision was leaked. Uh, I am expanding that task force both in uh, number and in scope to do, again, not only some scholarly uh, kinds of work product, but also I'd like to see it provide some real world help by providing some informational resources to women in need so that we can actually do something that might be meaningfully helpful to some of these people who are seeing their access to potentially life-saving health care curtailed. Again, We'll also continue to make our voice heard on key issues as they arise, always consistent with the core values that that guide us. That is an excellent agenda and very well articulated. We're going to briefly, because these episodes aren't the, the longest ones you will find on the Internet, we're going we're gonna to dive into a couple of these issues. I want to start with what Vince mentioned about judicial nominations and selections. And I was on this issue too. We did an episode of this podcast uh, earlier this year about the nomination of Judge LaSalle, a very qualified judge who had been nominated for the chief judge of the Court of Appeals in New York. And uh, remarkably, the state Senate rejected his nomination. Uh, I had a state senator uh, on the program who who had been for his nomination. It got very political, right, Vince? 
it, it sure did. Um, yeah, unfairly political, we thought, because, uh, you know, as some people have noted at the time, uh, this is the first time in 40 years that a nominee has been rejected in that fashion. And the rejection was not based on on the merits of uh, Judge LaSalle's nomination, it was based largely on unfair attacks that were made on him. And I, I do want to back up and say that we do uh, applaud the nomination of uh, Chief Judge Wilson. We f- feel that he's a great choice, and uh, Justin Halligan is also a great choice. And, uh, you know, we think that they'll do a fine job, but so would Judge LaSalle have done a great job. And we think that um, Governor Hochul's choice should have been entitled to more deference than it got. And uh, we think that on the merits, he uh, w- was a good choice. Yeah. I mean, she was entitled. She is elected governor. That's one of the things she gets to do. And she's supposed to get deference in that regard. Right. That's our view. All right. Now, you know, so we're seeing a lot of political input in the process of selecting judges. And then along with that, I feel like we're seeing an awful lot of attacks on individual judges and the decisions they make. And that's another issue, right, Adrian, that's, that Nikola is very interested in and has spoken on? Yes, absolutely. And I'll take a step back for a second just to remind your listeners that one of the reasons why it is important for an organization like a bar association to respond when judges are unfairly attacked is because by and large, they can't respond themselves. There are ethical constraints that prohibit them from responding, especially from responding in kind to some of the sorts of criticisms that have been leveled against some judges in the press. So it's not like, you know, someone attacks a politician on Twitter, the politician can get on Twitter if he or she so chooses and say whatever they feel like saying in response to that within the realm of, you know, propriety. A a judge can't do that. And so a judge needs, in our view, needs somebody to be able to do that for them. And NICLA has a history of doing this, and we have continued to do this and have found ourselves doing it uh, quite a bit lately, simply to respond to unfair criticisms of judges because they can't. Right. And I and I see all the time now, you know, the, oh, this judge was appointed by this person and therefore must be biased. And, you know, my experience as a as a litigator and trial lawyer for 30 years is most judges call balls and strikes. Most judges are just out there judging, observing the law ruling on the cases. You might not like every decision you get, but mostly they're just doing their thing, right? We agree? I think that's right. Yeah, I fully agree with that, yeah. And I try to say that to clients because I have some clients who always want to know about a particular judge. You know, who are they a Republican or a Democrat? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know that it matters, you know, that these are the cases on this issue. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Let's move on for judges because we have a couple other issues we wanted to talk about. And I'll pitch this one to you first, Vince. Tell us what NICLA is doing right now in the area of 18B attorneys, and just briefly explain for the audience who may not know what an 18B attorney is. Sure. Well, 18B attorneys are um, are assigned counsel who provide uh, aid to 
vulnerable populations, indigent and children, and they're compensated at a, at a very low rate relative to uh, many of us who are far more munificently uh, compensated. They, uh, until recently, received only $75 per hour. NICLA, 20 years ago and very recently, successfully moved to try to get uh, increased pay for 18B attorneys because uh, we regard as a fundamental access to justice issue that if you can't get people to serve the indigent and the vulnerable populations, then uh, access to justice can't occur. And so we were um, successful both times. The courts agreed with us that access to justice, due process, and uh, other constitutional guarantees can't be assured unless 18B attorneys are given adequate compensation. So we will continue the fight for uh, adequate compensation for 18B attorneys as long as we need to. Uh, it's being carried on statewide now after we won our victory downstate in, in New York City courts through the efforts of uh, Kramer 11, which uh, gave uh, incredible uh, pro bono representation to NICLA and other bar associations who uh, weighed in on this issue. And that's something NICLA does, right, Adrian, is, is will coordinate with law firms to take on some of these important issues uh, and maybe even go to the courts where necessary? Oh, yes, quite right. Quite right. I mean, we we did that uh, in connection with the 18B litigation. We've also done that in connection with some of the amicus briefs that we uh, have filed, including in particular, we have filed amicus briefs in the uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court, most recently in the Bruin case, in which uh, the court unfortunately <laughs> struck down uh, New York State's uh, concealed carry law. We filed a, an amicus brief in support of that law, arguing actually it was a it was an interesting brief because it argued from the standpoint of lawyers in New York City and why the concealed carry law was important to us as lawyers in New York City and how we um, have a particular interest in that working as we do in courthouses and in other places of potential tension. And in a city like New York, our brief argued, it was especially important to have the kinds of, we argued, reasonable protections that New York's concealed carry law entailed. Obviously, the court didn't see it our way, although you know, we we continue to support ways of trying to limit the scope of people carrying concealed weapons in New York City, which we don't think is a good idea, by yeah. and large. Right. I don't think it's a good idea either. And that decision in Bruin, of course, was part of a group of Supreme Court cases from this latest uh, incarnation of the Supreme Court that we've seen. That is, it, you know, the Bruin case was, what, a hundred-year-old law? that uh, they decided right now was unconstitutional. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Is NYCLA doing anything else in the arena of gun control? Yes, we are. We recently filed a uh, petition seeking a writ of certiorari uh, in a case where state laws prohibited domestic violence abusers uh, from obtaining firearms. And uh, we thought, geez, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the courts don't necessarily agree with us, and it's gone all the way up to certiorari, and we think that there's a good chance the Supreme Court will take that case within the next few weeks. So, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed. We've urged that uh, certiorari be granted to overturn the lower court ruling, which invalidated the law in question. 
Great. Well, those are those are all great causes. I wanted to mention, Vince, on the 18B point, you said uh, the 18B lawyers were getting $75 an hour. And just to put that in perspective for anybody who's listening and thinks, well, $75 an hour doesn't sound bad. Big firm lawyers are very much approaching $2,000 an hour, right? Sometimes more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They have long, long since blown by the $1,000 an hour barrier. So I know it compares favorably to a lot of work, but in the world of being a practicing lawyer, it's very, it's a very unfavorable rate and hard to sustain a legal practice in New York City on that kind of compensation. By the way, when you get $75 an hour, you you're not getting that rate every hour of every day. You're just getting it on the hours you work on that case, right? Well, and from that $75 an hour, you've got to cover your overhead and many other things. So you don't really keep very much of it. And I should add that rate has been in effect for, had been in effect. We've gotten an increase recently, but it had been in effect for 20 years without a pay raise uh, for 18B lawyers. And if I can also chime in, the last time there was a pay raise that that 20 years ago or more, it was in response to a lawsuit brought by NICLA. Yeah, I mean, we won a victory back then, as we did recently uh, on, on those 18B issues, ably assisted by Davis Polk 20 years ago. Right. Another another law firm joining a good fight. So, Adrian, tell me, you know, I, I see NICLA and one of the reasons I was interested in having you both on to chat was I see these visible public efforts that NICLA is making. And I wonder, how do you reach consensus on what issues you're going to address and how you're going to address them? That can't be an easy task. Well, right now, and uh, throughout Vince's presidency as well, we have and have had a leadership group, a group of officers that works extremely well together. We don't always see eye to eye on everything, but that is part of what makes us strong. And we have, among ourselves, generally been able to build consensus and we balance each other out and tone each other down or turn up each other's volume as needed. But we are uh, we have been able to do that. And there are certain actions, I mean, I don't want to get too far into the bureaucracy of this, but there are certain actions that the officers are able to take as long as they're consistent with the core principles on our own. And that's part of what enables the organization to be as nimble as it is. So you're correct that there is diversity and we value diversity not only of race, gender, and all of the other, those other diversity categories, but also diversity of thought. But within that, we are by and large able to get behind the various positions that we take because we do share certain core core principles. I like that. And, and what I like about your approach as we talk through these issues is you're taking on issues, you're, you're getting behind judges, you're getting behind lawyers, and you're getting behind the public. So you're not, you know, you think of the New York County Lawyers Association as only being interested in lawyers. You're clearly not. You are have a much broader agenda than just that, which I very much appreciate. All right. So this is the part of the program where I let you each brag, because not only are you 
doing a, a great public service with your work all these years on NICLA, but you're working lawyers. And I want you to talk a little bit, tell the listeners where you work and generally what you do. Let's go Vince first. Well, I'm at uh, Walworth Marin Deutsch. I've been a partner here for something like 20 years. I shudder to think how long it's been. <laughs> and I work on a complex commercial litigation, uh, primarily in the financial sector. That's our, our firm's uh, sweet spot. We represent often cases in which a financial institution is uh, suing another one, a hedge fund, for example, suing an investment bank or an insurance company, suing an investment bank. We uh, had a great practice in uh, mortgage-backed securities-related cases for a long time after the financial crisis in 2008. That's starting to run off now, and we're entering into other areas of financial sector practice. But for a long time, that's the core of what we did. We also did a lot of Enron work back in the old days when that was prevalent. But we are continuing to focus on the financial sector and cases in that in that area. Uh, we do mostly litigation in our firm. We're uh, relatively large for a firm that has almost no appreciable corporate practice. We have about 70 lawyers and we do nothing but litigation almost. And we have a few corporate lawyers. We've got a, a great tax lawyer, but uh, probably 90% of our work is litigation oriented, I would say, and mostly in the financial sector space. All right. Great firm. I have been in cases with you and your firm in the past and know your work well. Adrian. Tell us about your shop and your practice. Sure. I'm a partner with a firm called Katsky Korins. Last month, I celebrated my 30th anniversary wow. with the firm. <laughs> uh, next month, I will celebrate my 25th anniversary as a partner. I'd like to tell people that I did all these things when I was 12 years old, but that's <laughs> not actually true. But yeah, it, it is shocking when you think about it. My firm is a little bit, I am also a litigator, but my firm setting is a little bit different from Vince's. We are a firm of about 35 lawyers, but we do have multiple departments. Our litigation department is one of our largest departments of, I think we're at about 10 now litigators, maybe 12. I haven't done a headcount uh, in a while, but we also have transactional practices, in, especially in real estate, but also a general corporate transactional practice. We have a family law practice. We have a trust and estates practice and a tax practice. So we are a, a, multi, a multidisciplinary practice group. Our real estate department, in which I'm a partner, does general commercial litigation, and it really runs the gamut of all, all manner of business disputes. However, New York being New York, we do a fair amount of real estate-related litigation, ranging from commercial landlord-tenant disputes to disputes over partnerships and syndications in real estate developments. And one of the interesting things about doing that kind of work is that it takes place by and large in state court. And while we all practice in both state and federal court in my department, as, as do I, one of the things that's, that's interesting about practicing in state court is that because there are interlocutory appeals, if you have a state court practice, you wind up organically doing a lot of appellate work. And so I do a lot of appellate work, not only because of my state court practice, but also because I sit on the appointed civil pro bono panel of the Second Circuit. So I get my share of appellate work, which I find especially interesting and especially fun. All right. 
Very good. So, and that's a good segue, that discussion of the courts, into our final question, which we usually do closing arguments on this program, but we don't really have anything to argue about. Uh, (laughs) So I've decided instead to ask you both the question, you know, here we sit in June of 2023, and the courts have undergone really a lot, as we all did, during the pandemic and the years since. And I just want to know, you know, what your views are on the current shape of the courts sitting in New York, state and federal, whatever you want to talk about. I'm going to throw that first to Vince. Well, uh, Rich, as you remember from our days on the Federal Courts Committee, the courts have faced uh, dire times uh, from a budget perspective. And NICLA has often intervened to try to help courts when they're facing budget crises, when they're facing salary crises, as they did for more than a decade, there was not an increase in judicial salaries. So I I would say that we're uh, maybe in a a little better shape from a budget standpoint than we were in those days. And so the courts, uh, the courts are to be applauded, I think, for doing as well as they're doing with with the little shoestring budget that they do have, Uh, particularly during the pandemic, the biggest public health crisis in history. They not only persevered, but managed to thrive, uh, you know, not missing a single day of court time despite this huge public health crisis. And Adrian went and saw how they retrofitted the courts, uh, and they did a nice job uh, with the physical space, with the technology. And a lot of that is carrying over into the future that we're taking uh, the best from the pandemic. Hopefully, we're not doing everything virtually as we had to back then. But we're, we're moving forward using good technology and, you know, doing as well as we can on the, the relatively small budget that's provided to the courts, which is a tiny fraction of the overall state budget. And yet courts are always starved for resources. Uh, so we really do applaud the great work the courts have done, particularly during the pandemic. And we look forward to them uh, improving things in the future using lessons learned during the pandemic. All right. Great thoughts. Adrian, got anything to add to that? I agree 100% with everything that Vince said, including in particular the fact that while we all wish the pandemic hadn't happened, one thing that we did gain from it, and there might be other things that we gained from it, but one thing that we did gain from it was these advances in the use of uh, video conferencing technology in the court. So no longer do you have to, especially in state court, no longer do you have to go down to court and sit there for two hours waiting for your case to be called for a 10-minute conference. We can do that virtually now, and they're continuing to do that virtually. And it's increased efficiencies, I think, for the courts and for the lawyers. I guess the only other thing that I would add is to emphasize that the fact that the courts are doing really, really well on a shoestring budget is a testament to them, but it doesn't mean that they don't need more and better funding because they absolutely do. Yeah, I I would agree with and echo that comment. The, The judges in New York are great, and every single one of them has too many cases to keep up with. And when my clients get frustrated with how long something is taking to be decided, I just tell them these judges have hundreds of cases, and believe it or not, your case is not the most important one they have. But uh, it makes it very difficult to get decisions on a timely basis, to move cases along to trial quickly. I find 
that that speed is starting to pick up again. I have more cases right now scheduled for trial than I've had in a few years. I think we're out of that little bit of a hangover from the pandemic and starting to move. But more money into this great system we have would be welcome. I think you would both agree. Indeed. All right. Excellent. Vince Chang, Adrian Koch, thank you so much for joining me. Great to see you guys and keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks, Rich. Thank you for having us. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. <laughs> <laughs>